0: Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. One of the best real estate investing podcasts on iTunes, right, Alex? One of them, one of them. And I always say that when we have another podcast host on the show with us, like we do today, because I don't want to offend our guest. Of course not. No, no. (laughs) This guy (laughs) is a uh, a good friend of ours. We've known him for a while. We've interviewed him before, and it's very rare that we will interview a guest twice. And uh, this is one of the special occasions that uh, we get to have Josh Cantwell
1: Back yeah, we on the got podcast, some good which... info from somebody. Why aren't we going to hold it back, right? Yeah,
0: definitely, definitely. That's right. right. So uh, I'm excited about this. We're going to be talking probably a, a, mostly about private lending because um, we haven't talked much about that on the show. And it's a really important topic for, for obvious reasons. But first, guys, we want to invite you to go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. Check out the show. I mean, this is probably episode 115, 120. Wow, we've been doing this, Alex, since 2011.
1: Can you believe good work.
0: it? I feel like an old fart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, was, are you are you 40 yet, Joe?
0: Uh, yeah, let's not talk about that.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but um, how are you, Alex?
1: I'm 34. Oh, well, no, I'm good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good, good. You uh, just got a certificate of occupancy?
1: Yes, I got my certificate of occupancy. So um, although I'm not officially moved in, um, actually the furniture store did a lot of moving in for us because when you move to a new house, you got to get new furniture, right? Oh, At least that's no. what my wife tells me. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And uh, we got the certificate of occupancy. So we stayed uh, the night over the weekend. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. The kids are enjoying it. We're enjoying it. And uh, pretty soon we'll start the whole official moving process.
0: Hey, why don't you send us, email me a postcard, not postcard, a picture of your backyard, you want
1: a you want a postcard,
0: okay? No, no, no. no. Like, do send us a picture of your backyard with that pool and the view that you have back there. It's awesome. Well,
1: how about I wait till the the uh the you know, the patio, the decking, the patio is all finished. So oh, that okay. looks good. I can send you a picture from, you know, without all that and just shooting the water, but you know. No, no, well then we'll put it on the uh, in the show
0: notes of this if somebody reminds me. We'll do that. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, let's jump right into Josh, huh? Um Josh, we've interviewed you before. Uh, you are with Strategic Real Estate Coach. That's the name, main name of your business, right, Josh?
2: That's right, yeah. Strategic Real Estate Coach um, is our education business yes. where we teach and coach real estate investors across the country internationally, and we've been coaching um, on a national basis since 2006, 2007. We started coaching local investors in 2005, so we've been at it for about 10 years,
0: And you also do a ton of other things too, and we'll get onto that here in a second. But I want to encourage everybody to go back and listen to our previous episode we did with Josh. I don't have my browser open right now, but if you just go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, and by the way, while you're there, get our Fast Cash Survival Kit. And we have a bunch of other free bonuses. If you leave us a review, if you like the show, leave us a review. We'll send you a bunch of free videos and books and stuff like that. But um, if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and do a search for Josh, you'll see an interview that we did with you. Boy, it must have been two years ago, Josh.
2: Yeah. Actually, I see it here on my side on, the, on my browser. It's episode 45.
0: 45.
2: Wow. Be Daring with Josh Cantwell back in yes. January 2013, so over two and a half years ago.
0: Oh, my but gosh.
1: It seems like just yesterday. It does.
0: <laughs> but it was a good show, and we talked about like, your near-death experience. It was crazy. Right. And um, you had cancer. Was it was a throat cancer or something like that? It
2: Was pancreatic cancer? Yeah, geez. I uh, was that's lucky. Like
1: the cancer you don't <laughs> you don't want any cancer, but that's that's the crazy. That yeah, you don't hear good prognosis on that. Yeah, now, so, you know you're here. So. <laughs> that's awesome.
2: Yeah, you're. Right. I'm one of the lucky lucky few survivors. It's just a six percent survival rate after five years.
0: Wow! And
2: uh, I'm three and a half years since my surgery, which was November 2011. Um, so I'm I'm very blessed and fortunate to still be here. Um, and I've been cancer-free since the day of my surgery, so that's exciting. Awesome! And I plan on being around. For, plan on being around for a long time.
0: <laughs> good for you, Josh. Awesome. Well, that was a it was a really good podcast. Everybody should listen to that. And we talked in there, I think if I remember, about the middleman income, how to. Make deals. How to make money? Just kind of being the middleman in deals, and it's very still a relevant topic for today and a good strategy for beginners to get involved with. Um, Tell us a little bit more about kind of what you're doing these days. I know you you sold your brokerage, but you've started a new few other new businesses that are rocking and rolling. Talk about what's what's happened since then.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, since my surgery. I focused uh, a lot on on really understanding funding, understanding how to get funding, how to do deals with no money down, how to do deals with none of my own cash or credit. But really, how is that actually done? What are the real logistics? And so, you know, we 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 invest a lot in lease options and lease option assignments and lease option wholesaling, and that was the you know middleman income program. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, you know, I focused on really getting to know and understand. Um, how to get access to private money. And I wanted to get to know more about the private equity world, the hedge fund world, and the securities registrations. And so today, my personal focus um, is on buying distressed properties and focusing on the deals that produce big profits. Um, so there, a lot of times, if you're talking about a deal where you can make $30,000, 40000 $100,000, they're going to be more expensive properties. They're going to be in middle class and upper middle class neighborhoods. Uh, you know, in that 150 to 500 thousand dollar price point, or or more, and so I really wanted to dive in because it was so much conflicting information. And you know, Joe and Alex, you guys can attest to this. There's so much conflicting information out there in the in in, in guru world and in uh, in the speaking and training world about the you know about what is private money. Is it a security? Is it not a security? What are the rules? What are the regulations? And so I did a deep dive into that about two or three years ago and, uh, and found some great securities lawyers and really did a deep dive into that to find out what the laws are. And so today my focus is on raising private money, doing it the right way with the proper securities registrations. We buy a lot of distressed properties, and we end up rehabbing them, repositioning them, and selling most of them for big profits. I also own a rental portfolio and a commercial building, 10,000 square foot commercial uh, medical office building I just bought that needed completely repositioned um, and we're in the process of repositioning that. And so, um, you know, in my own local business, which I run right in Northeast Ohio, right in the greater Cleveland area, yeah. uh, we have about 12 to 15 uh, buy, fix, and skip, buy, fix and flip properties um, right here that we work on at any one time. So we'll flip between 15 to 30 properties a year, all for big profits. And then we teach and educate and coach. And then the third thing we do is we lend. You know, we, yeah. we, we have a private equity fund and we have a direct lending business. So we raise private capital and we lend to our subscribers and our members. So those are the kind of the three things that, that I focus on in my personal business, my education business, and my lending business.
0: Can I ask um, why you sold the brokerage? Because last time we talked, you talked about having the realtors underneath you working for you. Why, why did you choose to sell that side of the business?
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, primarily Joe, great question, but primarily because I like to do things that other people can't do. And the real estate brokerage business of owning a brokerage and being a realtor, I wasn't a realtor and I wasn't a broker. I was just the owner. I was the owner operator. And the realtor world is very commoditized. You know, you have really good real estate agents and their ability to be successful is watered down. By brand new realtors that get into the market that claim that they could do the same exact thing. And so there's, it's really tough to differentiate yourself in the realtor brokerage community or as a realtor versus what I looked at in the private equity space and the direct lending space. I looked at our community, Joe, of real estate investors needing funding. And I thought, you know, that's something where there's not a lot of competition and there's not a lot of really good companies that actually understand how to raise capital and, and, and lend to students to do real real estate deals. And so I looked at a business that was highly competitive, really you know, uh, small barrier to entry, which is the realtor business, versus the lending business, specifically for real estate investors, where there's a very high barrier to entry and there's not a lot of competition. And so I knew I could dominate that space, and that's why I made that move.
0: It sounds like to me you've read the book The Pumpkin Plan.
1: I haven't. I've never heard of that book.
2: Oh, What's that about? That sounds
1: interesting. The Pumpkin Plan?
0: Alex, I've talked to yeah. you about it before. Don't,
1: no, I don't think <laughs> you Come know. on, Alex, don't you're act holding like... You're back on me, man. No,
0: you're no, you don't listen to me when I tell you to Curly read Burr. Oh,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Man, it's called The Pumpkin Plan. Fantastic book, and it's all about finding your giant pumpkin and uh, cutting off everything else that's not. I won't go into all the details. I'll just okay, say this. Okay, makes sense. It's, it's a fantastic book. I can't pronounce the author's name, but it's pretty easy to find, right? You just go to Google or Amazon, The Pumpkin Plan. It's it's kind of similar along the lanes of the one thing, you know? Yeah. It's it's find the one thing that you're best at. You f- find the, the one thing that um, is, is in your wheelhouse, where your best clients are, where you make the most money with the least amount of work, where you get the best return on your time. And cut off everything else and just be singularly focused on that. Well,
1: really, it's like really like learning how to say no, right? Yeah. You got to learn to say no. I mean, everything sounds great, but we only have so much bandwidth in life, right? So yes. you got to find what you're best at. And sure. I, I mean, I find sure. myself, you know, even even in the real estate business and going in so many different marketing directions. Uh, you know, you, you find what works best and kind of stick with that because you can just really spread yourself too thin, and especially when it comes to time and everything. You well, know?
0: the the author talks about finding your sweet spot, and, and and I think this is important because it really relates to what we're talking about with Josh, um, a, a pumpkin farmer. These guys, they're like rabid pumpkin, giant pumpkin fans. You know, like they'll spend their whole year trying to grow prize winning pumpkins and they'll go and spend 1500 bucks, $2000 for per seed from one farmer somewhere in New England. And they'll buy these seeds and plant them and do everything they can to fertilize the ground and then it grows into a pumpkin vine. And a pumpkin vine will have multiple pumpkins in them, right? Well, it's they just go in and they find the most promising looking pumpkin in the vine and cut off all the other pumpkins. Okay? and then just focus all of the nurturing and the nutrients and the you know the the attention on that one pumpkin and it becomes a giant pumpkin. And you it's about finding your sweet spot then and your sweet spot consists of three things. Number one, who are your best clients that you enjoy working with the most? Who are give you the least headache? It's the 80/20 principle, right? Sure. The second thing is what part of your business can be most automated or systemized? And number 3, what makes you unique? What number one, your best clients. Number two, something that can be systemized. And number three, something that can be that's unique. And if you get the combination of those three things, you have to have all three of those things. That's your sweet spot. That's where your giant pumpkin is. It's a fantastic book. It it it's, it'll take you maybe three or four hours to read it. And he, he just wrote a new one called Profit First, and I'm reading that right now. And it's about. Um, I hope I'm not deviating too much from what we're talking about, but this is so good. I get excited about this because yeah,
2: no, I like it. I'm listening. For
0: pump, sure. pro- profit first. As we look at business normally as sales or revenue minus expenses equals profit. He's, he's talking about changing that formula around where you take your profit first from your sales. You take sales minus profit equals expenses. And it's about looking at your business from a totally different perspective and and you you have the sales, you take out your profits first, knowing what. Knowing what that twenty percent is that gives you eighty percent of your results, and anything left over is what you use for your expenses for your overhead, and then that way it's it's a much easier way to manage your business. Anyway, I, th- I was thinking of that while you were talking, Josh, because you just you saw that maybe that that brokerage wasn't in your wheelhouse; it wasn't something that. Um, while it might have been important and you were making money with it, right it just wasn 't giving you the best use of your time right
2: that's uh, that 's absolutely right and um, you know when when you survive right there 's so many different things you can do in real estate, and I can sum it up in this way when you survive cancer, an almost unsurvivable version of cancer, you realize that you 've been given a second chance, and my dad tells me all the time he says, "Son, you were spared for a reason." And this the only job you have in the second half of your life is to find out why. Yeah. And so I've, I've really lasered into, you know, my family, my faith, my friends, you know, my business, things I really enjoy. And I've been doing less and less and less over the past three years. You know, I enjoy sports, but I only really play three sports today. I play basketball, golf, and bowling. That's it. I only want to be good at those three, even though I love football and I love softball and, you know, but I want to be good at those three. When it comes to business, you know, I really just want to be good at raising money because, uh, in my real estate business, everything flows down from there. If I have access to funding, I can fund my own deals. If I have access to funding, I can fund deals for students. If I have access to funding, we can offer funding with our training and coaching programs. Um, you know, and we can teach people how to raise their funding and it solves such a huge need in the marketplace to really get to know and understand how to get the funding, and so the brokerage wasn't in alignment with that. So I sold it. I had another publishing business um, that I owned that wasn't in alignment with that. So I sold that. Yeah. Um, I used to travel a lot and speak at different you know real estate groups. That wasn't in alignment with you know my 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 objective of raising money. So I stopped doing that. Huh. That's good. Um, I don't I, you know I used to have an office and the office. Uh, was not in alignment with that. So I went totally virtual. And all my employees, we have nearly 35 employees in all our various businesses. Most of them work from home. So everything has gone into that, you know, that one principle, that one thing we wanted to be really good at. And as we've lasered in on that, we've gotten so good at it. And the business has, you know, there's more revenue in all of our business. There's more profits in all of our business. Because we're we're not spending a few hours a week dabbling in other things. We've just all of those extra hours that we used to spend in the brokerage or used to spend doing something else. We've laser focused into this one thing. And I would encourage everybody who listens to this interview to think about that in their own life moving yeah. forward.
0: Yeah, totally. You know,
2: they might think we do this with 80% of our time and we're good at it. And this other 20%, we're kind of goofing off with these other projects. I would encourage people to, you know, cut off those projects because that last 20% is the mastery portion. It's the, that last, you know, 20% of your life. If you reinvest that back into your main business is where you become a master at what you're doing.
0: And what if you, instead of focusing on, you know, the, the 20% of your focus produce, produces 80% of your profits. What if we focused a hundred percent on that 20%? What kind of difference right. would that make in our businesses and in our lives?
2: And that's another thing, you know. I have a I have a I have a thing I look at right above my computer that just says Josh 8020, right? Yeah, it says devise, systemize, and monetize. So for me, <laughs> it's good. about devising the plan, yeah, then systemizing the plan, and then monetizing and scaling the plan. So I have a that's list good. of what yeah, devise, systemize, and monetize. So I have the twenty percent that goes into those three things, then I have the 80% beneath that. And so I look at it every day of what's in my 20% and I continue to focus laser in every day on what's in my 20%. That's
0: excellent. That's excellent. And I, I just wanted to ask, you know when it comes to private money, um, I was talking to Alex and Alex told me, well can't you just just go put an ad in the newspaper? and put an ad in Craigslist that you're willing to pay investors 15% yo, what are you guaranteed.
1: no! Oh, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> I'm just making a bad joke.
1: No, you're going to get me in
0: trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I was just kidding. Alex was saying, whatever you do, do not put an ad in the newspaper or online that you can pay guaranteed returns. Uh, so... Uh, you know I, I guess it Josh, you know a lot has changed in the industry, right a lot is it's it it seems like um it's an important thing to be concerned about i guess can you talk about that why is it sure. why is this such a big deal?
2: well you, really what happened if if I could take a minute and give everybody just a tiny bit of foundation is that private lending it falls under the general securities laws, right? And again, I'm, I'm not an attorney, I'm not an accountant, but this is the information I've gotten from my really good securities lawyers, guys that are litigating securities laws, and in particular, Joe Carney, one of my securities lawyers, who you literally used to work at the federal SEC. And in order to raise private money, you're either offering somebody um, their principal, Back, you're obviously they're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars. You're going to give them their principal back plus interest, or you're going to give them their principal back plus equity. And if you do that, that is the definition of a security. Securities are regulated by the federal SEC, specifically the Securities Laws of 1933 and 1934. So what happened when the when the Great Depression happened? There were people. There were no federal securities laws at all. And a guy who started a business, let's say in Ohio. He could start a business and say, hey, you know, Joe, I'm going to sell you 50% of my company and I'm going to retain 50%. And then, you know what, Alex, I'm going to sell you 50% of my company and I'm going to retain 50%. I'm going to sell you, Alex, the same 50% I sold to Joe. And then I'm going to sell another 50% to another guy and another 50% to another guy. And if I'm in Ohio and I just cross state lines and I just drive over to Indiana, there were no federal securities laws and i could sell the same shares of my company to unknowing un, you know un, un un unaware investors and i could go across state lines and the state of ohio could not pursue me and that's yeah. one of the reasons why the stock market crashed in 1929 is because guys were selling shares of companies multiple times over and then people were realizing oh my god i don't really own 50% of this company I'm lucky if I own five or ten. So the federal securities laws of 33 and 34 became very important. And what's important to understand about those is those were the guiding securities laws in our country all the way until April 2012. And those securities laws said you could raise private money for your any business, not just a real estate business, but any business, but you could raise money and you do not have to be a broker dealer. It's called Reg D. Reg D says that you do not have to be a broker dealer. There are certain exemptions to the rules. And the exemptions that most people use was was, was what was called 506B. It allows you to raise money from coast to coast, raise money from an unlimited number of investors, an unlimited amount of money. But the catch was you had to have a prior existing relationship from every single one of those investors. And you were not allowed to do any general solicitation advertising. You could do a general solicitation, but you're not allowed to take money from those people. So you really weren't allowed to go, you know, put an ad out in Craigslist or Facebook or do luncheons or any of those kind of things because technically those people would be recruited to your business through a general solicitation. And so you were only really allowed to take money from people you had a prior existing relationship with. So a 506B exemption It was a great way if somebody had a really big network, if somebody was really well connected, if somebody was networked into lots of groups and somebody was a talker like we are and willing to go to groups and meet people and talk with people and create relationships and then make those people an offer to invest in their company or invest in their real estate deals. That was the rule. So general solicitation was banned for 80 years from 1933 to 2012. And here comes 2012. The Jobs Act. The Jobs Act stands for Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. The Jobs Act. And it was probably the single most important piece of legislation for small businesses in the in our lifetime. And here's why. In that Jobs Act, not only did it create c- crowdfunding, and not only did it create lots of different things, but it created what's called a 506C federal securities and exemption, which now allows businesses of all kinds, small, medium, and large businesses to actually advertise, legally advertise their offer to go onto Craigslist, to go onto Facebook, to do direct mail, to do luncheons, to do radio, TV, all those different kinds of things and actually advertise your offer. So for example, for me, I pay my investors 12% interest when I'm doing a personal deal or 15% of my profits, whichever is higher which ends up being higher. So in some cases my investors are earning 15, 18, 20, 30% on their money when they get, you know, a piece of the, the the deal. Now, in the past, I could never go advertise. And guys, don't take this as an advertisement. This is not an advertisement. I'm not advertising for money here. I'm just explaining my offer. Mark, But in the past I could not go advertise that on the radio or on television. Now, if I have a 506c federal securities registration exemption, I can literally go on and put a 30 minute infomercial together to recruit money if I have a 506C registration. So that was part of the Jobs Act of April 2012. It's a big freaking deal because any business owner of any kind, you could own a donut shop or you can, you know, a manufacturing company or plastic injection molding or real estate, whatever. If you have an offer to raise money, whether it's debt financing and you're offering people notes and mortgages or whether it's equity financing and you're offering people a, P, a security or an equity play in your business, you can actually advertise that to the public. But, guys, here's the catch. Here's the rub. I was going to ask. The 506- yeah, there's a rub. <laughs> yeah. the 506C will only allow you to actually take money from accredited investors. Yep. You have to be accredited. Now, people are going to ask, "What's the definition of accredited?" So again, I'm trying to give you guys the foundation, and I'll kind of I'll kind of wrap up with this part. So, five hundred six C allows you to advertise, but only allows you to take money from accredited investors. Accredited means that you have a million dollar net worth, excluding you said million, your personal million. residence. Okay. That million, right? Million. Yep. Yeah. A million dollar net worth, excluding your personal residence. So whatever equity you have in your personal residence does not count toward the million. Or if you're single, you have a $200,000 annual income for the past two years with an expectation of making at least two hundred dollars this coming year. Or if you're married, a $300,000 annual income for the past two years and the expectation you're going to make $300,000 in this next year. That's the definition of accreditation. So if you're accredited, you, that accredited investor can now invest into your company or your real estate deals or whatever. Now, the reason why they did that, guys, is... The SEC, Congress, wanted to allow businesses to start advertising their offer and get jumpstart money, startup capital. But at the same time, they wanted to protect the small guy, the small investor who only has a little bit of money. They basically wanted to open up this opportunity to accredited investors only. So the 506C is a huge play, and that's what we've done, is a 506C registration to allow us to advertise, to do luncheons, to do dinners, to do seminars, to recruit money, direct mail, TV, radio, but we have to ask people before they invest, we have to ask them if they're accredited or not. Now, the next question I get, real quick, is how many, what percentage of the population in the United States is accredited? And the answer is somewhere between 9 to 13%. I've heard two different numbers, uh, 9% from the SEC, and I've heard 13% from a different source. So it's about 1 in 10 people that we meet are actually accredited. So you have to sift and sort through various investors um, and make sure that they're accredited before they invest in your offering. So there's the 506B, which is fantastic if you're connected You have lots of investors, lots of people that you know, and you can take money from both accredited and non-accredited. You can take money from coast to coast, but you cannot advertise. And the 506C allows you to advertise for big money from accredited investors only.
0: So, Josh, how do you register your 506C? What's involved with that?
2: Yeah, great question, and it's actually really simple. Um, The uh, SEC has a website. It's called edgar.gov um and on the edgar website you can have a securities attorney or you can go personally and you can register on their site under a 506 b or c you'll get a notification w- within 30 minutes it's free and you're officially registered and you can start raising money it's that simple it's free and and anybody can do it um now The catch, though, even though it's free to register, is that you really need to have a disclosure document that discloses to your potential investors what the risks are. What's the upside? What's the downside? What are all the risks? And what the SEC says is if you end up in court, they're going to say, did you disclose? This is a big deal, guys. Did you disclose all the, quote, unquote, material facts, the material facts to your investors? that they would have wanted to know prior to investing. Is that almost like a prospectus? It's exactly like a prospectus, Alex. That's right. So a PPM or a private placement memorandum is your offer and it is your disclosures. And your job as a business owner or as a real estate investor is to think ahead. You have to think ahead and say, what would an investor have wanted to know prior to investing. And you have to try to answer as many of their potential questions that they maybe would have asked if they had known to ask. So you have to think ahead. What's my interest rate? How is the money going to be used? Um, what's, the, you know, what's the payback plan? Uh, you know, what's your background? What, what's, what's your expertise? Is this a startup or is this a seasoned company? Uh, are you going to be using the money on commercial buildings or residential or wholesaling or rental properties? What size of properties? What's the default rate going to be? you got to think these things in advance. And that's why having a good securities lawyer at this stage is important because a good securities lawyer, like the one I use, Joe Carney and also Ralph Sherman, they've been peppering me with questions for the past couple of years so that we could vet out all the material facts and put those in our PPMs so that we have those disclosure documents. It's basically a cover your ass document. Because if you end up in court and an investor sues you and because let's say they lost money in a deal or you know they didn't get the interest that they thought they were promised, that private placement memorandum is a document that tells them this is what I'm promising you, not just verbally, but in writing. And that's where people will have to make a little investment, hiring a good securities lawyer to produce that document, that CYA document. That's very important. Anytime you're raising money and whether you're in real estate or whether you're in manufacturing or, like I said, plastic injection molding or mortgage business, whatever you do, if you're taking money in from investors, that disclosure document is of utmost importance to protect you from a future lawsuit.
1: So a note and deed of trust does not 100% cover and guarantee your lender.
2: It does not. The note and the deed of trust is a great start. It certainly is. Uh, a, good, uh, a good document to have, it's, it's necessary to, to memorialize in writing the agreement between you and your private lender, but the note in the mortgage doesn't tell your investor what the risks are. It just tells them what's their interest rate going to be, how are they going to get paid, how often are they going to get paid, you know what, what property they're, they're lending against, if it's a mortgage or a deed of trust. But those documents don't tell your investor what the risks are. And risks are, for example, is your business a startup? That's a risk. Is there risks of the real estate market changing, going up or going down? Um, have you, know, you as a borrower, have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Um, you know, What's your background in real estate or your background in your business? Those are all potential risk disclosures that need to be made in a, in a PPM.
1: So now a real, a real estate attorney that's been doing this for a long time, I would assume has a document like this that could be, I, you know, in legal matters, you hate, well, I guess this happens all the time, you know, plug and play. Can you go to somebody like your attorney, for instance, and say, Hey, we want the disclosures that, you know, are general in general disclosures regarding a real estate private trust deed. Do you have something like that that you can help me out with? Yeah.
2: You know, so... Alex, we've thought that through and in our training and coaching programs that we offer, we give our students a copy of our PPMs and our executive summaries that they can literally copy paste over because we don't want them to incur, you know, in in my case, we've done very extensive disclosure documents because I just have, I have far, far too much to lose. I I don't want to end up in court with an investor that's pissed off and I have you know, my family and all my businesses and all of the assets that we've accumulated to protect. So, we have a very, very detailed PPM and executive summary. Um, and I actually give that to our 40K Flips members that own our 40K Flips product and our Freedom funding program, our coaching programs. We give that to them to try to save them all that time and all that money that we've invested. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, a really good securities lawyer should have basically a uh, a swipe file, if you will, of PPMs and executive summaries that they've produced. And there's also an entire database, which is the Edgar filing, you know, the, the Edgar system. And a lot of those PPMs and executive summaries are uploaded into that universe. So people can go, other securities lawyers, other people, other real estate investors, they can pull down those documents and use them as a template to try to shortcut the process. Awesome sauce. <laughs> so, Josh,
1: awesome what sauce. do you what do you do? To,
0: <laughs> Josh, what do you tell a beginning investor who, you know, has maybe been wholesaling some deals, they want to start rehabbing and they want to start start uh, raising some private money for some projects? Where do you tell them to start?
2: Yeah, great question, Joseph. Here's where I started, and here's where I recommend everybody else begin as well. I went and kind of jumped the gun and I went right to the federal securities filings, right? Because I assume people are going to raise money and they want to raise a lot of money and they want to be really successful in real estate or really successful with their business. And they're going to want to raise, you know, two, five, 10, 30, $50 million or more. But for a new investor just getting started, what I highly recommend um, and what my securities lawyers recommended to me is start with what we we'll call an intra with an A. Intrastate offering. Now, within every state, you know, Alabama, all the way through Wyoming, you know, A through W, all 50 states, in most cases, the state has an intrastate exemption. And that means that if you stay within that state and you raise money within that state and your properties are in that state and your LLC or your business matters are in that state, and your investors are also in that state, you're now regulated by the state securities offices. And all states, also they want you know small business owners to be able to raise money to jumpstart their business. And so every state has a certain number of private lenders or private notes or offerings that you can make before you have to register, but so long as you stay within your state. So for example, Joe, in Ohio, I can have up to 10 private lenders or 10 notes, and I don't have to tell anybody. I don't have to tell the state. I don't have to tell the Fed. I don't have to tell anybody that I'm raising money as long as I stay within Ohio. So if me, my business, my properties, and my private lenders are all within the state of Ohio, I can raise up to a million dollars. I can have up to 10 private lenders and 10 notes per year, okay, per year, and I don't have to tell anybody. Okay, but the, the only thing you're still going to want, you're still going to want to have a disclosure document. You're still going to want to tell your private lenders, these are the risks of investing with me. Do you okay? still?
0: Do they still have to be accredited investors?
2: No. No, in, in, in the state of Ohio and in all states, they could be accredited or non-accredited. Unless you're pooling money. Yeah, you don't want to pool, unless you're going to pool money exactly, Alex. Alex. So double, if you have like double. one investor per property... So let's say you're buying a property for $100,000. You got $50,000 in rehabs. So you're into it for 150, and your after-repaired value is 250. And you have one investor who gives you 150k from his self-directed IRA. You could do that within your state. You don't have to register with your state in most states. and actually, 37 out of the 50 states, you don't have to register at all. There's no, they don't ask you to register at all. Um, in 37 out of the 50, in the other 13 states, there's just a very simple what's called a notice filing, and you just want to put the state on notice that you're raising money, and that notice filing is only like 100 bucks. You know, you send it into the state, let them know, you notify them that you're raising money, and you're good to go. Um, and so that's where I would recommend people start is with an intra-state offering within your state. Start with people that you know. Those people could be accredited or non-accredited. In most cases, you can raise up to a million bucks. Um, In most states, you don't have to register. Um, And that's where I would begin. That's where I started years ago. And I didn't even know it. But all my investors were within my state. They were all people that I had a prior existing relationship with. And by default, that's where I started. Then when I really wanted to get big and started raising more than a million dollars a year and go coast to coast and raise money crisscross state lines, Then I went to a 506B federal registration, which allows me to raise money from people I have prior existing relationships with. It allows me to raise money from people I have accredited and non-accredited investors. Okay. But now I'm on a federal level because I'm crisscrossing state lines. And then when I exhausted most of those relationships and, and raised all that money, and now that I wanted to do general solicitation advertising... Then you move to a 506C, which is part of the JOBS Act of 2012. That's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what I recommend your listeners do. Let me ask you this, Josh. Um, and this is on a uh,
1: kind of, kind of a lo- just along the lines, the lines of what you said with a self-directed IRA. And probably something you might be able to answer quickly. I don't know. But... Um, Let's say uh, you've got a credit investor with a million dollars, right? And they've never, ever, ever done anything with self-directed IRAs and they want all the benefits of the self-directed IRA. What's the fastest way for them to move money to get it into a self-directed IRA in order to start lending from it so they can start reaping all those wonderful tax benefits?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So if somebody's got an old 401k or an old pension with a million bucks in it. What um, if they don't?
1: have a 401k that's just a million dollars and the bank per se
2: okay well again they're gonna have to follow the uh various laws regarding iras regarding 401ks those kind of things to get that money into a self-directed account um you know and unfortunately there's there's right rules and there's you know they can only deposit so much money yeah into a self-directed account now don't don't misunderstand me. Maybe maybe I miss uh, misspoke or didn't elaborate enough. If they have a million bucks in cash, it does not have to be in a self-directed IRA. No, it doesn't. If, but they want, it could just be cash. Taxes. <laughs> yeah, if they want the tax benefits, um, you know, they should really get with a company like Equity Trust or iPlan Group or Kingdom Trust and figure out what could they start. Can they start a SEP IRA? Okay. For example, if they're self-employed and they have business income from their self-employment dealings, they could deposit $53,000 a year into a sub-IRA. If they have a business, maybe they could do a 401k, a solo 401k. And in, in the case of a 401k, there's a balance plan and a profit-sharing plan that can be added to the 401k. And in some cases, you can deposit over 100000 or even Hundred and twenty hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year into those plans, get but again, get it has to win. be through a business.
1: That'll get you up there a lot quicker. But yeah, you know, exactly. A so a lot of investors, though, and a lot of people that invest don't are not business owners. They just have money that's sitting there collecting dust, and they're tired of just
2: collecting dust. You know? Right. And in that case, unfortunately, in most cases, they're only going to um, probably uh, fall into the status where they could do a traditional IRA or maybe a Roth IRA with a catch-up plan if they're over fifty years old, and they're going to be stuck with depositing five or you know six or seven or eight or ten thousand dollars a year. Yeah. And that's real small money. I know. But what they could do is start a company. Uh, you know, investing in, in whatever they want to invest in, in their business or, you know, creating whatever they want to create in their business. And if they can do that legally, then they can start up a, a solo K and but that solo matter. K, they can jam a bunch of money into it. It
1: doesn't matter what your revenue is, right? You can just as long as you have a business, you make an LLC. You,
2: would you say you're golden or can we say that? Well, the company has going to have to have income, right? And so they can take. Let's say as the business owner, you have a salary of $100,000 a year. Okay. Well, you could defer a big chunk of your salary into that 401k, and then the solo K, the company can also match, plus the company can take some of their profits into a profit share, and also what's known as a cash balance plan uh, can all be done in a 401k. And that's how you can get up there where you can deposit $50,000 or $100,000 a year into that solo K. But you have to have a business that, you know, that business has to be in the business of making money doing something. It hey, can't Joe, just be a listening? business that you set up just to invest your own capital.
1: You listening, Joe? Yeah. This is this is good tax stuff right here for uh, for both you and myself, you know, because we cry about as much taxes we have to pay. These are all <laughs> things that, you, you know, we
2: can do to help. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The solo K is a great thing. Now, just be aware, guys. A solo K is really for a, co- a guy that's really running a solo business. If you have a bunch of employees, there's there's what's going to be known as a a safe harbor program. And if you do have employees, those employees have to be included. So now you're going to be talking about more of a a traditional 401k because whatever benefit you have as the owner, you're going to have to include some benefits for your employees. Um, But it's absolutely something to consider. And oftentimes you can still jam 80 90% of the total dollars in the 401k can go to the CEO and the owner. And, but there is going to have to be some match or some benefit to the employee. Uh, otherwise it's going to be known as what's called top heavy. And if it's top heavy, then you might fall out of the rules and restrictions. But if you're a, really a solo owner with no employees or very few employees, the solo K is going to be an awesome opportunity. Good stuff.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And while you were talking, too, I was looking at the Missouri Secretary of State website, or I guess the Missouri Securities – what is it? Yeah, the Missouri Secretary of State. Anyway, yeah, and they have uh, brochures and pamphlets here on how to register as a small business security, and
2: it's interesting, and – you ha-
1: you're you looking
2: at Missouri. I can tell you right now, Joe, I'm looking at this document that I have. Now, this document is a couple of years old, so things could have changed in Missouri. I'm not sure. But as of the latest documentation that I have in Missouri, you can have up to 25 private lenders and notes in Missouri uh, with no filing and raise up to a million dollars per year in Missouri.
0: And, again, wow. they don't can – you, can you still – I, are there still restrictions, though, on how I advertise the, for them, right?
2: Right. In, in an intrastate offering, you cannot advertise to the general public. This, this has to be uh, you working with people that you already have a pre-existing relationship with, right. friends, family, people that you have uh, relationships with, people from your local networking groups, your real estate investor association, your, your Kiwanis groups, your rotary clubs, people that you already know. Yeah, uh, With an intrastate offering, you're not allowed oh, to recruit money through a general solicitation. You really can't have a quote-unquote private lender
1: website as these template sites are out there, and anybody can grab one unless...
2: Right. You really shouldn't have that unless you have a 506C yeah. federal <laughs> registration, and that 506C allows you to recruit money from coast to coast, an unlimited amount of money, and do general solicitation, but again you're only allowed to take money then from accredited investors.
1: Let me ask you this. and um, This is almost uh, like a, a good idea, bad idea kind of thing. And you seem really, really well-versed in the private money stuff here. Um, and this was something I think that was going on for a little bit. And you probably might know who I'm talking about, Joe. Let's say you were to go out and um, offer, and, and this is kind of a, a combined question because Let's say you, you're dealing with sellers, and the seller's like, I want $250,000 for my house. And as a wholesale offer, you'd be offering like $125,000 or $100,000. And they say, you know, I got to have $200,000 or two fifty, dollars whatever the number I said. And I said. And then you say, okay, great. I can pay you 250 dollars Now we're going to sell seller finance the note, right? And mm-hmm. we're going to take the note at $250,000, and we're going to place the note into second position right then we're going to go and get an investor say joe and say hey joe i got a great deal for you because i'm going to move you into first position and all you're going to do is lend me fifty thousand dollars. and now this fifty thousand dollars is very well secured on this property because you're in first position and i by the way i I guess, I guess if you're not really disclosing even what you're going to do it with that $50,000, um, therein lies the problem. But uh, there are people doing deals like this and then taking that $50,000 and using that as living money or or whatever you want to call it because it was secured on that property and the, the mm-hmm. original note, the two fifty was in the back on the second position.
2: Does that make sense? Have you heard sure. of it? I, I understand what you're talking about. I've I've never personally done a deal like that. And um, I, I can't speak to whether, you know, you should do it or not do it. Um, other than to say that $50,000 of new money that's invested into that deal, yeah. that money would fall under these intrastate, 50, you know, the intra-state offering number one, the 506B or the 506C should fall underneath one of those. And the proper disclosure should be given to that investor, so that you know they know how that fifty thousand dollars is going to be used. So that the Again,
1: disclosure is the key there.
2: Yeah, right. Because that fifty grand that comes in, let's say, are oh, going to be in first mortgage position, and I'm going to use that money for living expenses. Well, if you say I'm going to use that fifty thousand dollars to go, you know, put a down payment on a Maserati, and I'm going to go hang out with <laughs> that fifty thousand dollars, and you disclose that to that investor and the investor's like, fine, I don't care. I got $50,000. I'm in first position on this house. I don't care how you use the money. Well, Well, then fine, you're you're good. The problem lies that if you don't disclose it to the investor, the investor loses the $50,000 somehow, or they don't get paid back timely like they're supposed to. They get pissed off. They go to a securities regulator. They sound the alarm. The security regulator comes into your office and says, hey, you recruited this $50,000. This guy's going to sue you. Show me your disclosure document. And you don't have one. Uh, therein lies the problem.
1: Okay, maybe maybe I was being a little bit liberal there. Uh, maybe you would say, okay, forty thousand of that because you're buying the property as is. So you take forty thousand of it to fix up, and then you're going to resell it to somebody else on seller financing or whatever. Maybe ten of it you use for living expenses, or hey, I got ten thousand dollars that takes the pressure off. What you know, you know what I'm talking sure. about. So.
2: Again, just to disclose, even if you're taking an acquisition fee, you don't have to say I'm going to go use this money for personal living expenses, but could it be disclosed that you're taking, you know, uh, an acquisition fee for buying the property or you're taking a portion of your profits up front or you're taking some points or something like that and that's going to go into my pocket and I can use that money for whatever I want.
0: Right.
2: If that, absolutely. If that's disclosed in, uh, with that sort of language, that, I, don't, I don't see how that could be a problem.
0: Wow,
2: Thank you know we disclose. Hey, you know we, sometimes we take an acquisition fee up front when we buy properties. I might buy a property for hundred grand, put fifty into it, and be into it for one fifty, and I might borrow one sixty. Right. And if I borrow one sixty, and after closing costs, I'm walking away with seven thousand dollars at the acquisition. So long as I disclose that I might take an acquisition fee or charge points to myself, right? You uh, can and and
1: take use some that money, money then you're on fine on the front end, then, and it's okay That's as long as you disclose
2: it. That's right. It's all about disclosure, guys. I mean, you could have a bankruptcy, you could have foreclosures, you could have been to jail before and be borrowing private <laughs> money, but as long as you disclose to your investors, hey, I've been in jail for securities fraud, and if they still want to lend to you, <laughs> you've disclosed it. Oh. You disclose it. That's what it's all about. Because again, the job of disclosure is on the borrower or it's on the person receiving the investment. You have to put yourself in the position of the investor or the lender to say, what would they have wanted to know? But maybe they don't have, well, it's like, you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. So what would they have wanted to know to invest? What should you have disclosed to them to invest? Even if they don't know the questions to ask. You can't say, well, I didn't tell them because they didn't ask me. (laughs) Don't ask, don't tell. (laughs) Yeah. You have to assume as the borrower who's taking the investment, this is what I would have wanted to know or these investors would have wanted to know to make a proper decision of whether they wanted to invest or not. It's on us as the people raising the money to make that disclosure to them in advance. And again, you could say it all you want. It can all be verbal. But if you end up in court, it's going to be he said, she said. And the court's always going to take the side of the investor who invested the money and lost money in a he said, she said. So you want to create this disclosure document. You can certainly do it on your own. You don't have to hire a lawyer. But I would recommend hiring a good securities lawyer because this is what they do for a living. They'll punch holes in your offering. They'll find you know, things that you should disclose that you didn't think of. That's why I decided to invest the money. And I've invested nearly $50,000 with my securities lawyers over the last several years. I'm not saying anybody else has to invest anywhere near that money. It could be a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks to, to create a good disclosure document. Okay? And if you're going to be raising big money, that's just a fraction of the total revenue and profit you could make. So invest back in yourself, invest back in your business by taking a small piece of the potential profit and creating the proper disclosures that's all I'm saying.
0: Josh, some people are listening to this just probably rolling their eyes thinking what a hassle, you know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, sure.
0: I don't want to mess with that. So, would you say would would you say then maybe you know, maybe a better alternative is to come to somebody like you and just borrow the money.
2: Sure. The yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that we, we tell our members and our students that we coach. We say, look, I'm going to teach you how to do it yourself. And if it's going to take you a minute to be comfortable doing it yourself, well, just you know, come borrow the money from us. Because this is one of the things that we do is raise private money in our private equity fund. Our private equity fund is called Freeland Fund, Freeland Fund One, and Freeland Lending. And we then lend to our students, and that allows them to get some credibility, get some deals underneath their belt, close a number of transactions, be able to show those to private lenders so then they can recruit their own money. So that's often what happens, Joe, is at the beginning with the new investor or an intermediate investor, they come to us, they borrow money from us, we lend directly to them, they do a bunch of deals, and then as they make more profits, put more money in their pocket, then they decide, you know, I can go get cheaper money if I just go get it directly instead of going through Josh because Josh is essentially a middleman right I'm raising money from investors in my left hand into my fund and then I'm lending the money out to my students in my right hand and of course there's a markup or a premium for that money because my company has to get paid and we have the lights to keep on and employees to pay right so for sure circumventing us eventually and going and recruiting your own money down the road is the best cheapest way to go but in the interim if people don't have, they think it's too much of a hassle. They don't want to do it. Then they can come and borrow money directly from us. That's right.
0: Well, if, you know, if anything, it gives them the time to get some experience, get some deals under their belt, so they can, when they do approach a private lender or talking to a private lender, they can show them some credibility, show them some HUD statements. Right.
2: That's right. Yeah, that's good. Thank so you. that's. That's what it takes at the beginning, right? It's just a little bit of credibility. A lot of private lenders, even, you know, friends and family are going to say, hey, you're new at this. Go do a couple deals. And after you've gotten two, three, four, five, six deals underneath your belt, then I'll consider investing. But the question is, is if everybody says that, then nobody's going to give you that initial investment, right, to get started. And so that's where we come in. We make that initial investment. We lend to students, even if they have no experience. Uh, In addition, Joe, we're an asset-based lender. And what that means is that we look at the property more so than somebody's personal financial profile. Okay. Okay. We look at the property. We look at the deal. We We don't ask people to give us tax returns. We don't ask them to give us bank statements or pay stubs. We do pull their credit from one of the bureaus, not all three, but one of the bureaus. And the credit that we pull is because we're looking to see if they have any felony convictions on their credit or if they're in the middle of an active divorce or an active bankruptcy. We're not really looking at their credit score and lending off their credit score. I've given loans to guys with 501 credit scores before. I have a guy I'm giving a loan to next week that has a 534 credit score. But the deal, the property makes so much sense. He's buying it and rehabbing it for 110, and the after repair value is 185. And we have an appraisal done by, uh, you know, a licensed appraiser who appraised the after repair value at 185. So why wouldn't I give him a loan at 110? I'm only at a 55 or 57 percent loan to value.
1: You know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny when you talk about stuff like that, because um, Ron Legrand used to say, you know, when you're not in a deal that's right, you lay awake at night worrying, are they going to make their payments? Are, gonna, are they going to make this thing work? And he says, when you're in the deal right, and I'm I don't, I'm sure this isn't your attitude, he's like, you lay at night hoping they're not going to make their payment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some hard money lenders, other guys that are in the hard money business, the hard money lender business is a lot different than what we do because they require bank statements and pay stubs and tax returns and high credit scores. You know, we only lend to our students. We don't lend to the public. So ah. we're only doing deals with our students. So- my theory is, you know, some of these hard money lenders, for what you're saying, is they, they lend to repossess. Right. They lend the hope of repossessing the property because it's such a good deal. That's right. We don't, we don't do that because I don't want to be foreclosing on my own students. Exactly. We lend so that they can make money and we can make a little bit of money too, and everything works out for everybody. Um, but yeah, to, 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 to fund to foreclose is bad business because oh, yeah. you're funding in the hope that you can foreclose on somebody. I mean, really, I mean, I mean, what what a terrible sort of way to kind of live your life to hope other people fail so you can succeed. That's, uh, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. That's here, very right. Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fun to foreclose is definitely not a, not a, not a, not a business model I would follow. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: We're not, And we're not knocking Ron LeGrand either. No, he,
2: he was just so oh, funny. Right.
0: You know? that's, is- that's not what he teaches, but just, I just wanted to make sure we clarified yeah. that. I really yes. like Ron LeGrand.
1: We need um, him on the podcast, actually. So if you're listening, Ron, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure he listens to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, If anybody knows Ron, you know, I, could, I could probably call him up
2: and yeah. ask him. Yeah. yeah, I could put you in touch with Ron. Oh, there you go. Maybe um, we should
1: edit that
0: out then. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, he'll probably have a good laugh at it. But um well Josh, this has been really good. Where can people go, you know, to get more information on this whole private placement thing, lending private lending, getting borrowing some money from you guys, getting some education on how to do all of this. It's I don't I, I'm hoping that people listening to this who are new are not overwhelmed because um yeah. it, it is tricky but when you can break, when you break it down and Josh does a really, really good job of this over at strategic coach, breaking things down like this that can be really, can look really complex on the outside and complicated, but when you can sit down with a good coach, a good teacher, they can really show you how simple it really is. And when you got somebody holding your hands, it's a lot easier, right? Sure. So what, what's a good way to get a hold of strategic coach, the lending that you guys do, things like that, Josh?
2: Sure, Joe. I'll, I'll give that out. And I also want to break this down one more time before we wrap up of exactly what I would do if I was new, because I realize this can be overwhelming and I'm talking about really big stuff. Yeah. Um so yeah, if if so, first of all, the first thing I would recommend that people do to get started is 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 to borrow money. Borrow money from somebody who already has access to money to fund their real estate deals. That's me. I'm I'm an asset-based lender. We lend money to students, and we put together a free class that's online. They can go to freedomfundingclass.com, register for that class, and on that class, we'll walk them through how we're different as a lender, why being an asset-based lender has been great for us and our students. We'll walk them through our terms and conditions and how they can become a Freedom Funding member Uh, to get access to this asset-based lending. And that's also, Joe, the first thing I would do is I would borrow money from people that already have access to private money. So go to freedomfundingclass.com. Second place is just check out our main website, which is strategicrealestatecoach.com. And on that site, we have a free report called 55 Simple and Powerful Ways to Find Great Real Estate Investments. It's 55 different strategies that I've used and my highest level Mastermind students have used to acquire great real estate investments right now, right now in today's market. These are not strategies we used 10 years ago. We literally met two months ago in a closed door mastermind. We put this report together. It's about 30 pages, it covers 55 different strategies to find great real estate investments for wholesaling, for rehabbing, commercial, rental. Uh, they can check that out at strategicrealestatecoach.com.
0: Good. And you have a podcast too, Josh. Is that? Were you hosted as well there?
2: Uh, we actually just we hosted on our website, strategicrealestatecoach.com, and they can also visit in iTunes. It's called Real Estate Investing Made Easy. And Joe, I'm going to have you on uh, very, very soon here and, uh, and interview you on our podcast as well. And we'll talk about what you're up to, uh, your travels throughout Europe, and how you're still investing in real estate back in the States while you're out of town. That's fantastic. Awesome. Uh, but Real Estate Investing Made Easy is our is our podcast on iTunes.
0: Yeah, good. I've listened to a few of your episodes. They're really good, Josh. And uh, I encourage everybody to go listen to that, Real Estate Investing Made Easy with Josh Cantwell. Your free class for the funding side of things is freedomfundingclass.com. That's right. And your main education website is strategicrealestatecoach.com.
2: Very good. That's right.
0: So, Joe, just to wrap
2: up, what would I yeah. do if I was new? Again, so people are not overwhelmed. Yeah, good. Please it's, do that. I would, again, I would become a borrower, go find good real estate deals, and i become a borrower for somebody that already has money. So that freedom funding that we offer, that's where I would start. Then number two, to raise some of your own private money, I would start with people that you already have a pre-existing relationship with. If you can offer your investors a 12 or a 15% return, you you kind of owe it to your family, your friends, and the people that are nearest to you yeah. to give them a great return on their money. Don't go to strangers. Don't go to you know, the public. Go to the people that, you're, that are most important to you because they're dying for a good yield. Uh, my copywriter used to say, Joe, all the time, he used to say, look, if you have an offer that's going to benefit somebody's personal life and you feel passionate about it, then you have a moral obligation to offer it to them, Hmm. a moral obligation. So I feel with my own friends and family, if I can give them a 10, 15, 20% return on their money, I have a moral obligation to show it to them because they can't get a 12 or a 15% return in the stock market or in bonds or in CDs. So that's the second thing I would do is I'd go do an intrastate offering with your own people you have a prior existing relationship with. That's step number two. And yeah. step number three is once you've exhausted that state offering and you wanna crisscross state lines, then go to a 506B federal registration. And again, go to the people that are already in the network that are across state lines. Then when you've exhausted that, step number four, Joe, finally is go to a 506C federal registration which is part of the JOBS Act of 2012, which allows you to do general solicitation, do marketing all over the country, put together infomercials, direct mail, radio, TV, social media. Do that. But again, keep in mind, you can only take money from accredited investors with that offering. That's the four steps that I yeah. would use.
0: Well, I like it too, because if you're a beginning investor wanting to rehab deals, when, when you can go to a lender like Josh – you're going to find out whether it's a good deal or not, right? And, right? and If it's not a good deal, they're not going to lend you the money, and that's that's a huge advantage to going to a lender like that first, because they they want to see you succeed. You're,
2: they want to see you win. And-, and guys, listen, I tell people if we won't fund it, not only should you know, not only are we not going to fund it, but you shouldn't do it either. Even right. if you can get another funding source.
0: Right. That's the you know, point.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've personally closed over 650 deals. You know, some of the other guys that work within my companies, they've been lending on deals. We have over about 2,500 deals that we've borrowed money on or lent money on. And we know when we smell a bad deal. And if we won't fund it, then they sh- you know, the student should just walk away from it entirely and go find another deal. And it'll be the best deal they never did. <laughs> That's right.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Really good point. Well, this this has been a good podcast, Josh. It's been really good.
2: Awesome show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Alex, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, man. It's awesome.
0: So guys, go check out Josh's podcast, Real Estate Investing Made Easy. Go check out strategicrealestatecoach.com or go to his freedomfundingclass.com to get more information on the uh the lending program that Josh does. And of course, our website, guys, if you want the show notes, if you want the transcription to this podcast, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Just do a search in the upper right for Josh, and you'll see the two episodes that we've done now with Josh. And um, pretty soon, Josh, let's do a third one, maybe sometime down the road, not too far away.
2: Absolutely, Joe. I'd love to do it. Thanks so much.
0: All right, guys. See you later. Take care. Thanks.
2: Take care.